Anna Kendrick once said, I love rules, and I love following them, unless that rule is stupid. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're talking about bad house rules. We've all had an experience with bad house rules over the years, where people have introduced a rule that didn't quite gel, didn't quite make sense within the rule setting, or was just plain unfun. Some of us have even introduced ill-fated rules to our games, only to find out that we made the mistake of bringing in a bad house rule. Ultimately, in order to understand what makes for a bad house rule, we need to have at least a basic understanding of what makes a good rule. So what makes a rule good? Well, a good rule adds extra choices, extra immersion, or patches perceived problems in the rules. It basically makes the game more fun. A good example of this is in 2nd edition, people used to roll 46 and drop the lowest. This is actually what you were referring to as an ascended house rule. Yeah, ascended house rules are rules that began as house rules introduced by players that then traveled by word of mouth, especially through the internet, especially during the battle days of gaming where open gaming didn't exist yet, so people would swap rules, ideas, and stories through forums and bulletin boards. Sended house rules are rules that were eventually introduced to the game as part of the core rules of the game. 46 drop lowest for character creation is great because it's still a random character creation method and those were in vogue for a very long time. It still gives the possibility that a character is going to have a low stat, even a 3, but it makes it far less likely that the character is going to be unplayably bad. In fact, it averages out to a fairly good character. I think ultimately you can expect, what, a plus 6 total bonus with this, if you're using it correctly? Uh, The average stat was a 13 or something like that, I believe. Anyway, ultimately, the 46 drop lowest makes it far more likely that you're going to get playable characters. Another example of an ascended house rule was a publisher who, during the 3rd edition days, published rules for feats that would give you a plus 2 bonus to two different skills. Now, skill focus gives you a plus 3 bonus to one skill. These would give you a plus 2 bonus to two different skills, one of them typically being a very versatile skill used frequently, and the other one being a less frequently used skill, such as jump, not so frequently used, and climb, very important for adventuring, or um, spot, uh, very useful, and sleight of hand, not so useful. Things that were used more commonly and less commonly. And speaking of those, there was also a house rule that ended up ascending that was the rule for combining some of the more related and less used skills. Skills that were important to the game, but that felt pointless to have to drop two skill points just to be good at them. Examples of these would be like spot and listen being combined into perception. Very rarely was someone just poor at hearing and better at seeing. Likewise, climb and jump, they were rolled together into athletics, as well as move silently and hide, rolled together into stealth. A lot of people were already playing under these rules when 3.5 came out and made these rules canon. The two skill feats and the combined skill rules were introduced well before 3.5. When 3.5 came along, they were such a good fit that they were included in the core mechanics 
mechanics of the game. Pathfinder did this with a few things as well when they moved from 3.5 to Pathfinder, but we don't want to get too deep into that right now. Talking about Ascended House rules is kind of something we might want to discuss on another day. We're talking about bad house rules, rules that ruin the enjoyment of the game and don't accomplish these sort of things. So let's dive right in. The first one we have to talk about are the convoluted rules. The, this one is really more a category that is a little bit more contentious. Not everyone will agree, oh, well, that's just a poor house rule, just a bad house rule. But we can say pretty categorically, these are bad. Here's an example. A lot of people try to shoehorn D percentages as roles in games, because in a lot of older games, you would see D percentiles used for things like rogue abilities or for everything in games like Dark Heresy and Warhammer role-playing first edition, which no one really feels a nostalgia for. Okay, Jeremy's giving me the puppy dog eyes. You feel nostalgia for the games, not for the ridiculous system of adding together all of your little bonuses of 2 and 3% until you had your number, and then rolling 40 above it anyway, so it didn't matter. Yeah, Dark Heresy was a really awesome setting, but the rule system was clunky as hell. Anyway, a long time ago, gamers pretty much accepted that D percentages are for rolling on charts and very little else. They're not good as actual resolution dice. Another rule that is a convoluted house rule is placing your hand on top of your head to talk out of character. Now, the purpose of this is to make sure that everyone remains immersed in the game. This is to prevent outside talk from distracting from the game and basically keeps everyone's mind directly in the game, task at hand. Now, as a DM, I have had circumstances where I wish players were clearer about whether they're talking in character or out of character, especially when they're giving a hypothetical answer to the situation jokingly. I tolerate this because it's fun, it's funny, and we're all enjoying ourselves. But ultimately, I, I do spend a lot of time, I feel, saying, did you really say that to the King of Winter? Or did you really tell the ogre that that's your plan? I mean, are you really saying that? And they'll backpedal and say, no, no, obviously that was a joke. And it would be nice to be able to say that players had to make some sort of gesture. But ultimately, some players are always going to forget these things. And treating exactly what they say as in character under those circumstances might might be amusing, but ultimately creates a lot of chaos and difficulty, and maybe I didn't see their hand was on their head, or maybe uh, they put their hand on the side of their head to scratch themselves while they're talking in character, and I got confused. Ultimately, it's best if you're not sure if someone's talking in character, I feel that you should just get clarity on the matter. You should ask them directly, was that in character? Another convoluted house rule are critical hit tables, specifically custom-made critical hit tables. These are cool and interesting. Everyone likes the idea of, oh, when I attack the ogre and I lop his hand off. But sometimes they just get really ridiculous and silly and overpowered, for one thing. The old second edition critical hit tables, when they were introduced, were unquestionably overpowered. Now, critical hits didn't come up a ton in second edition because they were only given for natural 20 rolls. Having said that, on the original critical hit tables, you could very easily just kill an opponent outright, regardless of how many hit points they had, simply by having them fail a saving throw versus death effects. This was a huge mess that could result in the premature death of bosses or player characters, more importantly. Critical hit tables introduce chaos to the game, and the more chaos you introduce to the game, the more it favors single encounter groups. Now, we're going to talk about that a little more in some later house rules, but ultimately critical hits that use tables slow down the game, introduce unnecessary 
chaos and really cause some issues for how the game is executed. The next category of bad house rule we're going to talk about is the low magic, low money house rules. These are the ones where people go, oh, I want my game to be different. Instead of having a normal game, you guys are all going to be receiving half money for your encounters, or magic is less common in this game setting. You're not going to get as many magic items as you're normally going to get. Which, I mean, in a second edition sense, kind of makes sense, but... Oh, okay, no, I gotta stop you. I am sick of the trope that second edition didn't have as many magic items as third edition. It's simply untrue. If you played second edition, rules as written, some enemies had a very large chance to simply have magic items in their hoard or on their person. Also, these magic items came off random charts. And when I say random charts, I'm not talking like roll on this chart and you have a chance of getting this or that or the other thing. I mean, the same chart would have plus one sword and vorpal sword on the chart. You could have the same monster drop a pitiful plus one sword or even a cursed weapon, but then you could also have that monster drop a holy avenger, a vorpal weapon, a plus three spear. It was all fair game. And the more you attacked and fought with monsters that had these treasure hordes, the more likely you were to get these treasures. Nobody really played that way and that's fine but people need to stop pretending that rules had written it didn't work that way because everybody acts like second edition was this wasteland of no magic items and the dm had super control over things but at the same time it was actually totally possible to end up with disproportionately powerful magic items for very low level groups all right we're, we're getting a little off topic right now we're talking about low magic and low money settings right so the real issue with this is that the assumptions of the system are are that player characters are going to get a certain amount of treasure and magic items. That's built into the challenge system of the game. In 3rd edition D&D, for example, it's expected that player characters are going to have a certain amount of treasure at each level. If you look at the charts, you can see this. That means that when you fight a CR5 monster, it's meant to be fought under the assumption that the player characters have access to CR5 weapons. Similarly, in 2nd edition, when you're fighting higher level monsters, it's built under the assumption that the players are going to have access to that plus two sword that allows them to actually hurt the monster. Also, low magic item settings favor the wizard. The wizard automatically gets his magic. The fighter is usually the first one to get a magic item. A plus one sword is usually the first iconic item that is handed out in a treasure hoard. That is the magic item. The big thing is that when you are removing magic items from the game, you are favoring classes that inherently get access to magic. Furthermore, you are hampering classes that rely on magic items for most of their power, like the fighter, for example. Furthermore, when you change this assumption of the game, you are changing the power dynamic of the game. A lot of games have options for playing low magic games. If you get Unearthed Arcana for 3rd edition, for example, it has ways of allowing for a low magic campaign where player characters still get access to the power they need to fight monsters appropriately. That's one of the major problems with this is that it is an assumption of the challenge rating system of the game and when you remove those magic items you're not just making it harder to deal with monsters that have damage reduction against magic, you're reducing the overall strength of the party to the point where they may no longer be able to beat challenges of their level. 
Now, an interesting thing, one of my favorite settings of, of all time is Dark Sun, Athos. In it, it is a low magic, low money setting, but it's done in such a way that it's really only the perception that it's low magic, low money. There is a disparity in wealth between the haves and have-nots, but at higher levels you still have thousands and thousands of ceramic pieces. Likewise, the idea of it being low magic is more or less just role-playing based. I mean, psionics were the core way of gaining magic in Dark Sun, but they still had wizards. They were called defilers or preservers. Right, and clerics might not have been available, but you could still be a druid in Dark Sun. Alright, so the next class of bad house rules we have is nerfing classes. This one is just pernicious as hell. It this is a this is a class of bad rules where someone will do something and the DM will go, no, that's too powerful, and just bring down the ban hammer. Unfortunately, the most common targets for this are the classes that least need to be nerfed. I've been guilty of this in the past. I used to view monks as overpowered in 3rd edition. I did this mostly because they could never be disarmed of their weapon. Their weapons were inherent to them. If you're attacking with unarmed strikes, there's nothing that can be done to alter it. So I perceived them as having the ability to spend more money on magic items that would make them more powerful in other ways. They didn't need armor. They didn't need weapons. Therefore, the monk would have access to all sorts of power. The thing is, the monk never actually achieves the same power level as the fighter for combat ability. This is true of the rogue as well, which is also a very common target for nerfing. People sometimes see a rogue do 30-40 damage on sneak attack at only 4th or 5th level, and they say, whoa, the fighter can't even do that. We need to nerf this. The thing is, the rogue sneak attack is topical, and it should be topical. It's not effective against some monsters, so those monsters are essentially not vulnerable to to the rogue's most powerful ability. Second, monsters should understand that rogues exist and take certain precautions against them. It's not the same as every monster being incapable of being sneak attacked, but monsters should have an awareness that if I get flanked, I am going to take a lot more damage, especially if they're intelligent monsters, and should be avoiding getting flanked. In fact, one can argue that things like big cats or wolves are even more aware of flanking than humans because they have inherent combat instincts. So there should be precautions taken against flanking. Flanking itself doesn't need to be nerfed, nor does the rogue sneak attack. Now, if you really have a problem with, let's say, the fighter class in your campaign, or the rogue class in your campaign, it might just be a better idea to ban the class entirely. This could be a very interesting flavor choice for you. If there are no fighters in your campaign, it suddenly makes there a giant divide between the wild warriors, the ranger and the uh, barbarian, and the trained holy warriors, the paladins. You still have the ability to have a character with some martial strength behind them, but that martial strength is no longer in the flavor of I went to fighter academy to do to be the fighty man. You know, now now career soldiers who don't take one of those paths are just warriors, and they don't have some sort of power behind them. Anyone who has true power behind their combat ability has one of these flavorful reasons for it. Likewise, removing the rogue from the game would cause bards to occupy that role more, or possibly rangers to occupy that role more. It would remove this aspect of having these sneak thief type characters and make it more so that you had these trackers and these troubadours that had 
wide ranges of knowledge. Ultimately, it makes the game more interesting to remove a class outright than it does to simply damage that class's ability to play fairly in the game. The next class of bad house rule we have is changing the core game assumptions. Now, this is a little bit harder to quantify. But it's not harder to recognize when you see it done. An example was, I for a while played with 2d10 in my d20 games instead of a d20. My reasoning largely being that randomness favored the enemies rather than the player characters. Some of my players were frequently disappointed by rolling an inordinate number of 1s, 2s, 3s, and other very low rolls, and I figured that if we moved more toward the average, that this would help correct a lot of that. And I feel it really did, but it changes so many assumptions of how the game works that ultimately it was too convoluted and difficult to use, and frankly, we all missed rolling d20s. So we ended up abandoning it. But that's a good example of changing a fundamental aspect of how the game works. So I think the most iconic changed house rule in this category is the double crit. In second edition, if you rolled a 20, you got a critical hit. But many DMs would have you roll the d20 again. If you got a second 20, it was an automatic kill. This sounds great in theory because it makes for an interesting situation. You would have a character who might be facing a mighty dragon, and this actually happened in one of my campaigns, though when I used the rule, I expected two 20s and a confirmation on the critical in order to do it. And I had a player character who killed a dragon this way. And we were all really excited because that was a really interesting scenario. A single bl- Killing a dragon in a single blow was absolutely freaking legendary. We were all very excited about it. Having said that, it also came up when a player character was hit with it in an inordinately unfair scenario where they were fighting a monster that by all rights shouldn't have been a serious threat to them. This was not enjoyable and was kind of an unforeseen consequence of having this rule. The big problem with introducing these type of rules is that they do favor the monsters. A single monster, a single NPC, is often only meant to be in one combat encounter up until they die. After that, it doesn't matter. Oftentimes, a critical hit would just kill a goblin doesn't matter that you rolled that second 20 to auto-kill it. It was dead to begin with. But player characters have many, 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 many combat encounters that they have to go through. Thus, they suffer more critical hits than anyone else. The more randomness you introduce to the player characters, the more you are favoring things that appear for only one encounter, because they have a chance to cheat the system and do something incredible in the very short time they may have in order to actually interact with the player characters. Monsters show up for one encounter, player characters are in every encounter throughout the entire game. Another example of changing a fundamental aspect of the game is the super common automatically succeeding at social roles because you described your position very well. Now this often sounds good in principle because you're thinking, well, the king really can't find a good argument as to why he shouldn't send troops based on your very compelling explanation of why this is necessary. So it stands to reason that I should allow this to happen. And it might even make for a more interesting game in some circumstances. You might have actually wanted them to persuade the king, and it's important that they do so, otherwise it kind of throws a wrench in your well-laid plans. And I'm here to tell you that this is a problem. We are playing a game, and there are certain assumptions of the game. 
This is a twofold problem. One, if in a social situation I become silver-tongued and can give numerous arguments, why can't I do that in combat? Why can't I explain how wonderful the flourish of my sword is as I attempt to lop the goblin's head off? Why doesn't that just automatically hit and deal damage? The second problem with this is it's often weighted toward social encounters, which means that it actually forces the players to build their characters more toward combat. If there's uh, selections only really matter for combat, they won't be taking the social skills. They won't be taking the social benefits that boost their diplomacy skill, for example. Now, if this is part of your playstyle, that's absolutely fine. It just needs to be an assumption of your playstyle before it's a good thing. I think that it's universally a bad thing, though, because many players don't have the same background as other players, and they don't have theater backgrounds and stuff. I was involved in theater all throughout my youth, and I also was involved in debate and largely have an understanding of how to persuade people with good, solid arguments, especially if those people are willing to be persuaded. If I'm talking to someone who might see something from my point of view, I'm usually very good at bringing them around to it. If my character is not, though, then I'm kind of cheating the system by doing this. I'm allowed to ignore part of my character building in order to accomplish something because I don't need that aspect to accomplish it. This completely lopsides games where there is an assumption that someone in the party is going to be spending their time doing social activities and social roles. That's why if we're playing in a game that has an assumption that social roles are a thing, then social roles should exist and they should be enforced. You shouldn't allow someone to get around a social role because their real-life argument was just so persuasive. The next group of bad house rules we have are rules that favor certain playstyles, or even worse, Rules that favor the DM. Let's address favoring the DM first. Never need a rule that favors the DM. One of our friends was talking about how when he played 2nd edition, his DM allowed monsters to take attacks of opportunity against spellcasters casting spells. In 2nd edition, there were not attacks of opportunity, so this was a new notion that he had introduced to his game. Not only were monsters allowed to do this, but they were allowed to pull out a secondary or ranged weapon to make an attack if they were out of range. This is a huge problem, especially because it wasn't allowed to player characters. Only monsters seem to have this ability. Honestly, why would you do that? You're the DM. You're allowed to dictate the rules of the game anyway. If you want monsters to have an effect, they have it. It's that simple. Yes, this would fall under that, but what you're doing is telling the player characters that you don't have to play by any rules at all. And there has to be, for a game to be enjoyable, the illusion that the DM is playing fairly, even and especially if the DM is not. Now, the next part of this one is really uh, one that sticks in my craw. It's the XP per kill rule. In this, characters only gain XP for monsters that they kill. That means either they land the killing blow or that they dealt damage to. This is a really bad rule because it forces players to take on this weird morphed role and try to make all of their characters DPS machines, which is not a good thing to do. And when we're talking about DPS machines in this case, we're not talking about my character can deal 300 damage in a round to a single monster. Now it has to be, I can divide my damage however I want. The more you're able to divide your damage, the more you're able to kill mooks and claim their experience, and then 
focus on the boss. One could argue that you will then make the system based on the number of hit points of damage dealt, but this completely ignores concepts like support characters, characters who have to get into position to do their attacks, characters who exploit the shape of the battlefield, and characters who prevent enemies from doing damage. All of these are interesting choices, and as we said before, one of the major reasons to introduce a rule is to support additional choices. And when you shoehorn people into a position where some choices are just better than others, you aren't adding to the game, you're just cutting parts of it off. With this, it completely neuters the bard and the pacifist cleric. The bard will often be sitting there singing, giving everyone bonuses to attacks and damage. But none of that damage counts for the bard himself. John was telling me one time about one of his player characters having a really hard time going, well, I'm not doing anything in combat. At which point John pointed out, well, you're playing a bard right now, and yeah, you are just making one attack per combat, whereas several of the fighter type characters are making five or six attacks, but on every one of those attacks, you are contributing both to their two hit and their damage. Every time they hit by one or two, and they would have missed if they had had one or two less points, you are responsible for all of that damage. You are the reason that hit did damage at all. As such, you should be thinking of yourself as part of the damage powerhouse of the party. It wasn't that he wasn't enjoying playing the game. It wasn't that he wasn't enjoying what his character was doing. He just felt he wasn't contributing to combat. And he was actually doing the opposite. When we did the math, he contributed to combat overall more than anyone else. More than the Barbarian. Because sometimes the Barbarian would have missed without him. And each of those attacks is completely forfeit. So if the Barbarian did 60 damage in an attack that only hit because the Bard was doing their thing, that's 60 damage the bar dealt. So the last grouping of bad house rules we have is probably the absolute worst. This is the applying physics to magic or applying physics to the rules. Oh, yeah, this is this is some garbage and especially pernicious because it masquerades as rules as written. People like to say, well, I'm just reading the rules and applying them. A great example is what Jeremy pointed out to me recently, the elbow drop of doom. Would you like care to explain the elbow drop of doom? In third edition, Whenever a creature or object fell on a person, it dealt damage based on the weight of the object that fell. The problem with this is that a greater earth elemental, which is a huge creature, weighed 50,000 pounds. It was a pretty strong creature, and it could jump pretty high in the air. So it would jump up 10, 15 feet in the air, and then fall. It is now a falling object doing 100 and some odd d6 points of damage. Now this is ridiculous because the slam attack was just a 10d6 damage attack. So if it's doing its normal slam attack, it does 10d6, which is a very respectable amount of damage. I think 10d6 plus 36. Don't quote me on that, but it was something pretty severe like that. But that's nothing next to 100d6 of damage that it would deal if it was a dropped object. Ultimately, you're gaming the system to try to avoid having to follow the normal combat rules for fighting with this monster. And that's really pernicious because it appears on first glance that you are following the rules, that this is exactly rules as written. But in this case, you are bending the spirit of the rules and ignoring the fact that the ability of this earth elemental to harm you by running into you or falling on you is represented by its slam attack, not by the rules for a falling object. Now, the next three that we have here are fall under the category of the it just makes sense. This is applying physics 
to it, and these are really bad. Uh, there's casting fireball into a cave. In second edition, if you had a bunch of fireballs cast immediately into a cave, all one after another, after another, after another, after another, they would fill up the cave, suck up all the oxygen, create a horrible amount of back pressure, killing any creature inside. Except that's not how Fireball works. Yes, you can argue that it seems logical that the Fireball should cause this back pressure and blow the heads off of anything in the cave, but rules is written the intention is not for Fireball to be this super secret kill technique that can be used to suck all the air out of a cave and kill all the orcs inside. That's you gaming the system and again, ignoring the assumptions of the game, which is that we are playing a fantasy role-playing game where fantasy combat will happen. This is not a physics simulator that follows specific physics rules, this is a game that follows game rules. And when you try to apply the it just makes sense ruling to it, you are cheating yourself of the experience of playing the game. The next one we're only going to briefly touch on this is the peasant railgun. We've talked about this before. You had a whole bunch of... Uh, Peasants all stand in a line, have readied actions. You hand one of them a baton, and they go off, and they suddenly move this baton about a mile in one direction, and then the last one releases it, sending it away at a railgun speed. Yes, it moved at a railgun speed, if you're counting each peasant passing the baton, which is technically allowed under the rules. However, there's no rules for objects remembering inertia when a peasant throws it. So what you did is you moved a baton a mile down a string of peasants, and the last peasant throws it and does, what, 1d2? damage, whatever the baton does. It doesn't matter because it doesn't somehow remember that it was a railgun because, again, it's not a physics simulator or passing the baton would have never worked in the first place. If you're going to apply physics, you have to apply them consistently. When you start applying them selectively, you look ridiculous. And the very last one we have here is our friend Jacob actually loves this rules example. So let's say I have a small ball that is enchanted to grow massively when I say a command word. I throw it and say the command word and suddenly it is a huge boulder traveling at the speed that I threw a ball. How much damage is that going to do? Well, it's not going to do any damage because as soon as it becomes a huge boulder, it loses the inertia it had when you threw it. You only gave it so much power when you threw it, which means when it grows into a ball, it plummets straight to the ground because it doesn't have enough strength behind it to go forward. Problem solved. Uh, actually, no, because then we'll go in the other direction. Let's say I have a frisbee, a simple metal frisbee that has a shrinking spell on it. I toss it at a leisurely 30 miles an hour and then ca uh, have the command word that shrinks it down. It is now moving at bullet speed. Okay, well, here's the real answer to it, though, is that frisbee that went from being a medium-sized frisbee to a tiny frisbee now does 1d1 damage because it is a tiny object, and the tiny object throw deals 1d1 damage. The other way, the rock that went from a medium-sized rock to a gigantic rock scales up in damage. So that medium-sized rock did, what, 1d2? That's 1d4, 1d6, 1d8, 2, 2d6 damage. Pretty respectable. Good for you. Certainly not going to crush somebody because when you apply rules as rules and not as some sort of physics cheat code, you are playing the game as it's intended. When you start doing weird stuff with physics, you are applying a house rule and you need to stop kidding yourself and saying that what you're doing is just doing something that just makes sense. So let's do the wrap-up here. Why are bad house rules there, and how do we avoid them? Well, there are good reasons to insert house rules into your game, as we've already discussed. And ultimately, it is your game. The Exalted Storyteller section even says... 
that when you play Exalted, you are not playing White Wolf's Exalted. You are playing your Storyteller's Exalted. And I could not agree with that more. You need to be able to tailor your game to your group. And that often means inserting house rules. But what you can do is not necessarily what you should do. The most important steps are to know what the rule you're replacing does and know what the consequences of changing it are. Don't be afraid to introduce a house rule and be sure to discuss it with your group and try to understand the pros and cons of it. But furthermore, don't be afraid to remove that house rule. Once you've introduced a house rule, it is not ironclad and etched in stone. You still have the option to take it back out of your game if it is impeding your fun. And ideally, you should be able to write down all the house rules your group plays with so that you can present them to your group in an understandable way. So, what do we have up next? Our next episode seems to be our favorite RPG rules. Yes, rules in RPGs that make the game good or that give a unique flavor to a given game. And there are a lot of them out there and a lot of games that play with their own sets of rules. And it's going to be really exciting to look into what makes games great and what we can take away from that for all of our games. All right, so this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. Lou Holtz once said, I follow three rules. Do the right thing, do the best you can, and always show people you care. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVersusRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at SaveVersusRant. We'd love to hear from you.